Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Salaf Lodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about persistent genital arousal disorder. And before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I'm not giving any type of medical advice. So if you are having any medical issues or you think you may have this, uh, please speak with your healthcare provider and definitely not giving any type of religious uh, advice. So please speak with your neighborhood, uh, friendly neighborhood religious leader. And so this is a Muslim sex podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. And I do want to tell you again about my retreat um, happening September 20, uh, 16th through the 23rd in 2024. And I'm accepting new patients. So now let's get into the episode. And we are on episode 100. Woo-hoo! 100. <laughs> that is amazing. I know. And there isn't anyone else I'd want to share this episode with except Dr. Samina Rahman. Absolutely. Dr. Rahman is a superstar and gyno girl on Instagram. And she is a sexual health doctor extraordinaire. But I will let Dr. Rahman introduce herself, and then we'll get started into the episode. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Samina Rahman. Um, I'm Gyno Girl on Instagram on my YouTube station. And I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Lodi today um, to talk about a very important topic that doesn't get a lot of press or you know details or discussion in general. So um, we're going to talk about persistent genital arousal disorder. Yes. All right. So I am really interested in finding out more about this. I know that um, in the Ishwish course that we had, which for those that don't know what Ishwish is, it's the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And they put together a fall course, which uh, happened to coincide with my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) But um, celebrated. (laughs) We did. We did. Thanks to Dr. Aman. And um, so anyways, they mentioned uh, the persistent general arousal disorder in there. And so many things that I learned that I definitely would love for our guests to learn about as well. And um, how it's diagnosed, what can happen, what are treatments and what happens if you don't get diagnosis? Yeah. So um, 
it, you know, it's a disorder, I think, that's been um, identified since around, I think, 2001. And um, it's really, actually, I'll pull up the actual um, ISHWISH guideline definition, because it what it amounts to, it's a genital pelvic dysthesia. So dysthesia means an abnormal sensation. And so it, it tends to be an abnormal, intrusive feeling in your genital region, um, particularly related to uh, making you feel aroused or on the verge of orgasm without any sexual um, stimulation or like thoughts of sex. It's very intrusive. It's a very debilitating disorder. I think um, maybe it has, you know, um, a prevalence of around 3%, but we probably underdiagnose it and people don't come out with it because they think there's something wrong with them, has an exceedingly high rate of suicidal ideation, like over half of the patients that have this disorder, you know, um, want to um, commit suicide. So trigger warning, sorry, I should have done a trigger warning on that. But it's a very disturbing disorder for many patients. Um, and, it, you know, typically the length of time is, is, is six months, but I'm going to, I'll read to you where you're supposed to have these. Um, let me, I'm just going to read to you the exact ish wish sort of definition of what we look at. Okay, and this was from their 2016 uh, consensus guidelines. It's characterized by persistent or recurrent, unwanted or intrusive, distressing feelings of genital arousal on the verge of being on the orgasm or genital pelvic dysthesia, not associated with concomitant sexual interests, thoughts, or fantasies for a minimum of six months. It can be lifelong, acquired, generalized, situational, or associated with the following characteristics. Limited resolution, no resolution, aggravation of symptoms, and bisexual activity, making things worse, making things better, aggravation of general symptoms by certain circumstances, sitting, driving, listening to music, general anxiety, nervousness, despair, emotional lability, catastrophization, inconsistent evidence of general arousal on physical exam or symptoms. I mean, basically, it is a horrible disease. It is obviously, um, you know, on the neuropathic pain disorders, which are increasingly hard to not only treat, but to have patients because of the sensitivity of the region, we always talk about the stigmas associated with what we talk about. And because so many patients are highly stigmatized by the nature of this, like, oh, why do I feel so aroused? And, and you know, for whatever reason, uh, and some of the patients that have had it their whole life, um, you know, have been shamed since they were like five or six years old, where they would have these general sensations and felt the need to masturbate. And maybe at that time it alleviated it and now it doesn't. Um, it is really awful. I do see, you know, a number of patients with this disorder, but, and I, and I love to help them. It just, it's a process. It's really no, there's, there's very few times that I've ever treated anyone with this disorder that I've immediately cured them. Like from the first meeting, you know, it was, it's one of these things where we have to go and figure out where we think the inciting factor is coming from. And, um, you know, like I said, over half of the patients, you know, have suicidal ideation, anxiety and depression and mental distress are very much a part of this. You know, did it, did it come first? Did it come after? It's hard to know, but um, most of the patients that I've dealt with have underlying anxiety disorder and become super depressed when they've been dealing with this, particularly for a long time. Some of them have history of sexual abuse or, you know, trauma of some variety, maybe not sexual trauma. Maybe it's trauma with their parents. Maybe it's physical trauma. Maybe it's trauma from the medical system, you know? And so I think, that it is probably a, a very underdiagnosed disorder. People are now, I think, able to characterize it. One of my patients recently said, who had been struggling with it for a year, you know, 
I didn't even know the vocabulary for this. Like I didn't even know what to say about it. Like if you don't have terms to use, it just felt weird. And you know, like, you know, uh, if she brought it up to a doctor, they'd be like, oh, I would just enjoy it and have more sex, you know? And these patients are really on the verge of like, you know, ending it. And you're telling them to do something that might aggravate it more because, you know, many clinicians don't know about it, right? So, you know, you have patients that don't know, clinicians that don't know, which we know this is a big problem in sexual medicine. It's just like an under studied field and under um, and, and little awareness for it. So that's why this is such an important podcast, I think. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, definitely. Well, we, we know that there's absolutely tons of stuff that we as clinicians do not learn about in medical school or even as OBGYNs in residency, right? Like you, you wouldn't have learned this if you yourself didn't take the initiative and learn more about sexual health. I didn't learn about it, you know, until I started taking these ISHWISH courses and learned about it. So this is something that definitely that's under-researched and as clinicians, we just don't hear about it. And you're right. You know, people will say awful things like, oh, yeah, just go ahead and next, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they think that it's, it's pleasurable and it's not for these individuals. So I had a, I had a question and actually um, Alan <laughs> had asked the question, is it uh, more common in women or men? Do you know that? Um, I think it's more, it's been more studied in men. And I don't know, um, you know, the extent of, you know, how common it is in there. I think it's around 3% of our population that we see um, is at least it's statistically what we in terms of the data that we have. But um, uh, it is, you know, something that that men experience as well. I don't see men in my office. So therefore, I don't know as much about that aspect. Um, but I will say that, you know, in the past five years, we've come a long way. I think um, there was something from somebody sent me a segment from like 2001 or something where or it was like an early 2000s, like um, segment where like, you know, crazy sex stories from some sort of, you know, one of those programs out there. And it was like, this woman is having like 70 orgasms a day. And it was like supposed to be this thing that was like, oh, how amazing. And she was like on the verge of committing suicide. You know, it's like, it was so awful. Like, I mean, and just, and then I, I saw, I was going to do a reaction video to this, but, um, someone sent me a, um, a video of, um, this SNL skit where like they were saying this patient who had just been, you know, um, diagnosed with PGAD. And it was like every minute she was talking, she was like, I'm on the verge of an org. And it was supposed to be, and I found it so sickening. Actually, I was watching this and I wanted just to be like, this is so sickening. I can't believe people are making fun of such a condition. And I know it's just an under, under um, appreciated, under under studied, and not many people are aware of it. But I was so disturbed by watching some of this. I was like, oh my god! I just think about all the people out there that are really suffering that come to my office like bawling because they've been lifelong shamed over this. You know. Right. right. And, you can see what an impact it has on individuals' lives, right? And the mm -hmm. fact that um, because I feel that our society just sexualizes everything, right? They yeah. think that, oh, it must be, yeah. right, right, that it must be so wonderful to be going through this, whereas yeah. you know, people are really suffering when they are. Mm -hmm. And for the listeners and viewers out there that are thinking in their head, like, who the heck is Alan? Alan is the editor <laughs> for my podcast, so just so people know. But um, anyway, so tell me more about this. So what are the causes of something such as a, the persistent genital arousal disorder? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, probably in the past five years with all, you know, all the ish, well, I guess it was 2016, I just told you that that um, statement came out with by Ishwish. So um, past seven years, you know, really developed a way to kind of 
investigate what's happening, right? Uh, you know, at, at the at the conference recently, um, Dr. Rachel Rubin joked that as um, sexual medicine doctors, we're like sex detectives. But it is really true, like especially something with PGAD where you're looking at the situation and you're trying to figure out what was the inciting agent or what are the contributing factors. Um, and most of you know that listen to this podcast that we approach sexual conditions and dysfunction through a biopsychosocial lens, right? And so it's very similar to how we look at this condition. But in addition, we're also looking at a region-based approach to evaluating this. And so what I mean by that is um, just like any, like what we call neuropathic or nerve-related pain situation, you have to figure out sort of what is the pain source, right? What is what is the main thing that's happening here? And so um, Ishwish has come up with a, a region-based approach to any genital pelvic dysthesia. So that could be clitoral pain, vulvar pain, generalized pains um, in the genital pelvic area. Um, and genital uh, um, persistent genital arousal disorder goes along with that. And so what, I, what we have is uh, looking at all the regions. So the first region is sort of the end organ. The end organ, what I'm referring to is the vulva and the clitoris. You know, is there something happening at the level of the clitoris? We talk about, uh, and I, I'm sure when Dr. Dr. Rubin came and talked about the clitoris. She talked about clitoral adhesions and these keratinized pearls and whether or not um, the schmegma, you know, that's under the clitoral hood for these patients is contributing to unwanted arousal. It could be contributing to pain. We know it could be contributing to unwanted arousal too. So that way affecting the end organ nerve endings. Um, so that's one way to look at it. And then we look at the vulvar vestibule, which um, I'm sure she may have mentioned or someone else has talked about a little bit, but the vulvar vestibule, just to remind you, is the area between the inner labia minora and the hymenial remnant extending from this line called the heart's line, and it goes all the way up to the urethra and down to the opening. And that vestibular tissue is sort of unique in that it's very similar to the bladder, and it has both testosterone and estrogen receptors. And so it can be very much the source of insertional pain for a lot of patients, which then can contribute to potentially arousal issues. Um, as we know, the clitoris, as we see it as that little body, is really a lot of the majority of the organ is under the labia minora. So that arousal tissue is there. So obviously any injury to that area can result in overstimulation of those nerve endings. So we have that, um, you know, looking at the clitoris, the, the labia minora, the vulvar vestibule. Um, I think we could at some point talk about vestibulodynia and insertional pain with sex, but, you know, that can be related to, you know, both the, the pelvic floor muscles, it can be related to hormone um, deficiencies, and it can be related to inflammation and um, an increase in nerve density at the vestibule. So that's kind of, um, again, the end organ. So we call that region one. Region two is looking at the pelvic floor and the pelvic floor, um, you know, where the pudendal nerve travels through and, you know, the muscles that can become hypertonic. Every patient that has PGAD usually has to have some um, pelvic floor physical therapy. These are all patients that need a multidisciplinary approach, which includes um, somebody from, you know, the medical community, somebody from um, the physical therapy community, um, as well as, you know, we look at um, psychiatric conditions and sex therapy. So really like a bunch of people are helping with this patient. 
And so the pelvic floor therapist may do gliding of the pudendal nerve. They try to release any of those hypertonic areas. You know, if we talk about the patients that have this with high anxiety, if you are an anxious person, you tend to be clenching the pelvic floor, that pelvic floor becomes hypertonic. Then we have, um, you know, these issues around a weakened pelvic floor too. So all of that contributes to potentially the pain that or this on um, this this dysthesia or arousal feeling they have. So that's the second region. The third region um, and the third and the fourth region have to do with the spine. So if you think about your sp- your central nervous system is your brain and your spinal cord, um, you know, and you have the peripheral nerves that kind of um, are communicated from the central nervous system. The spinal cord travels through um, the your backbone, right? Your vertebrae, which are like the cervical, the lumbar, the I mean, the thoracic, the lumbar, and then the sacral nerves. Um, and then they, all the nerves converge at the nerve en- at, to make um, nerve roots at the end of that. That's called the cauda equina, which I think is Latin for her- horse's tail because that's what it looks like. And so the cauda equina is region three because those nerve roots that are the nerve roots that feed into the pelvis, right? Um, we used to have a mnemonic. I'm sure they have so many new mnemonics, but, you know, if we went to med school, like, what, 20 years ago? <laughs> so they used to have a mnemonic of S2, S3, S4 keeps the penis off the floor, you know, because that means that those are the um, uh, nerve roots that actually um, help for, you know, uh, sexual function because they feed into the pudendal nerve, they feed, and which then eventually feeds into the nerve ending of at, that feeds into the clitoris. So it's it's a whole pathway, right? And we think this is a nerve related condition. So the cauda equina is looked at very closely, and people can have um, abnormalities in that cauda equina area. Um, you know, um, mainly around the area, you can get these little cysts. And they're called Tarlov cysts, which, um, you know, are kind of like um, these cysts that form in a sac that kind of compress these nerve endings. And then that might cause some excitation. There really used to be thought of that these cysts um, are very non, uh, like they're, it's an incidental finding. And most spine surgeons still look at it that way. So it's, it's been a hard sell for sexual medicine clinicians when they find these and we think there's the causative reason to really get them to buy into that. So um, that's that, the cauda equina. And the, the region four is your lumbar sacral nerves. Um, again, those the lum- lumbar and sacral area have nerves that um, kind of come out of the foramen. And, you know, those that's your, your vertebrae um, and the nerves that come out of there. And they feed into the pelvis, right? So if you have something like um, a disc herniation or... You know, we have these cushions between our vertebra. They're called um, discs, right? And so uh, they have a portion of the disc called an annulus and a nucleus. And those areas of the um, the um, disc can have develop a tear, and then that can cause compression of those nerves in their own way. So annular tears or, you know, other kind of... Um, uh, herniations, you know, may contribute to some of this issue as well. So that's region four. And then region five is your brain, right? So the brain is involved with all the central signaling to our spinal cord and our pelvis. So we do believe that, you know, there can be some dysregulation with your neurotransmitters. Maybe somebody's come off of SSRIs too quickly. Maybe someone's been on trazodone or other medications that are affecting 
you know, their dopamine or their norepinephrine levels, all of a sudden they're getting hyper excited. We do think that some there's might be a link with patients that have, you know, thyroid antibodies or hyperthyroidism may be involved with some of these patients who, which in, in turn may be affecting their dopamine and norepinephrine, which, um, I'm sure what you guys have talked about at some point how the brain is a sexual organ and we have, you know, um, things that excite us and things that inhibit us and dopamine, norepinephrine, testosterone, oxytocin are all excitatory. So if we have too much of this, you know, from the level of the brain, maybe it's feeding down into the pelvis and causing these intrusive feelings of arousal. So that's kind of the regional approach that we use. And again, it's like being a sex detective. You try to try to figure out, you know, what may be the instigating factor. Patients with a history of trauma, sexual trauma, medical trauma, whatever kind of trauma, you know, do develop um, some of these conditions sometimes as well. Um, and so that's, you know, sort of an understanding that we're trying to evolve, but I'm sure it sort of has to do with the plasticity of the brain and how, how, our, uh, how things can affect us at the level of neurotransmitters and hormones. But, it's amazing. Yeah, it's it is. I mean, I think uh, you know from the first time I heard about PGAD, which was like maybe two thousand fourteen or fifteen, to now, you know, having this understanding has been wow. Like people, they've really kind of honed in on different ways to help patients with this. So just for them to know that there is potential help is always something that they're relieved by. Like maybe I can get help from this. Because, you know, there's a lot of PGAD support groups like on Facebook or other places and I have patients that'll go to them and a lot of times they're like, oh, I, I want to go to the groups, but then I don't want to go to the groups because some patients are very catastrophizing, very much at the end of the rope and maybe you're doing a little bit better or you've gotten some aggravating factors under control. Um, and so it becomes one of these issues of like, you know, is it going to aggravate you more or help you? But a lot of times patients will get ideas even from that and they'll come to me and they'll say, Hey, you know, what do you think? And I was like, well, you know, it, it's possible. Let's try it, you know, or something like that. But, um, I think that's, what's kind of exciting about the field of sexual medicine is that it's so understudied that there's so many potential therapies that we can try on patients because some of these things, um, have just not been emphasized before. So. Right. All right. And I think that, you know, when there is limited research or when there is, um, there's so much opportunity there, right? That's mm -hmm. one way to look at it. And then there is the opportunity for more research to happen. And like we know that pro what President Biden just um, right. enacted right. more funding for women's health. Uh, right. Women's health, which is long overdue, but at least it's finally coming to fruition. So I think that that's really important. So tell me, so then, you know, once that somebody is diagnosed with this, right. And like you said, a lot of patients uh, hesitate to come to their providers. And then when they go to their providers, they're probably dismissed right. because they probably, the provider doesn't know, doesn't understand that this is actually a real condition and it can mm -hmm. be awful for the patient that's experiencing it. Right. And so now you've diagnosed them and now you're taking a look and you've examined them. What type of therapies are available for somebody that may be suffering? Yeah. I mean, um, Again, I always talk to the patients about how it's a regional based approach. And so and I tell them that sometimes, especially the ones that have been suffering their whole life, that it might take some time for us to get there. Um, and so we start with, you know, each region. And if it's uh, looks like they have clitoral adhesions, 
we do a lysis of clitoral adhesions. If it looks like their vestibule is inflamed and underneath that tissue is, um, you know, the erogenous tissue around the, around the, um, you know, the urethra and the periurethral glands, you know, we do, we treat that based on whether or not we have to treat uh, it with hormones or treat it with physical therapy or treat it with, um, uh, you know, uh, neuropathic uh, medications. Um, like I said, they all go on uh, physical therapy. They all have pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, sometimes we'll use Botox in the vagina to help um, release that tension, decrease the pain at the level of the muscles. Because um, just to reiterate that a lot of these patients do have anxiety that they've developed either from this condition or, you know, this can, and their anxiety is contributing to this condition. Um, and so, you know, treating the that is very crucial too at the level of region five. We have to treat the anxiety with either the right medication or cognitive behavioral therapy or both. Um, looking at their medications are important, you know, to see if, if some of them have been involved with, you know, this um, disorder. Um, and then, um, you know, getting a MRI of the spine. We do that um, pretty readily. Sometimes it doesn't get covered. Insurance doesn't believe that sexual medicine, you know, should get covered for anything. <laughs> so when you order an MRI, it's kind of tricky because uh, I'm always like, do you have a little bit of radiating pain down your leg? Like just a little bit? Maybe sometimes I was like, okay, we're writing down radiating pain down the leg because they'll cover it for sciatica or for uh, lumbar radiculopathy, but they won't cover it because I tell them that it might be PGAD or, you know, something like that. Yeah, of course not. So, um, you know, our medical system is, is really against us in so many ways, but um, so we'll do that. And if it looks like, for instance, someone has an annular tear or maybe, you know, they do have a Tarlov cyst, you know, that cyst could be compressed, decompressed and reduced by a spine surgeon. But again, you have to get the spine surgeon to buy into it. So I'm lucky that I share my practice with my husband, who's an interventional pain specialist. So he can do one of the injections to see if, you know, doing a, a caudal block or maybe doing, um, you know, a selective uh, nerve root block. If he does that and it helps, sometimes he'll do a sympathetic impar block, you know, some of these blocks. And if it seems to help the patient, then, um, you know, sometimes we'll get a buy-in. Uh, a lot of times they have to go out of state, though, because um, a lot of the surgeons here will still not do that, which is unfortunate. Um, and then, you know, uh, we have to think about these peripheral nerves too. So sometimes we'll do those blocks, the pudendal nerve, you know, as it comes off of, um, the sacral area, it kind of goes into the pelvis. So that's why I talked about how the pelvic floor therapist will kind of glide or roll the pudendal nerve to see if that they can release any irritation or inflammation around that. Um, we can do pudendal nerve blocks. Some people do develop, I had a patient with PGAD who had a, had a hysterectomy and had a pudendal nerve injury. And one of her manifestations was PGAD. So once oh, she wow. got treated um, for the um, pudendal nerve neurop uh, neuralgia and got some pelvic floor therapy, then, you know, she got some control over her PGAD symptoms. Um, but, you know, Obviously, you know, that's can be difficult too, especially if the nerve is pretty damaged. Um, and so it really depends on on the degree of damage for some of these patients um, when it comes to their nerves and their nerve endings and their nerve roots. Um, but a lot of my patients will go on um, like pregabalin or Lyrica or, you know, some of these anti-seizure, anti-anxiety medications. They GABA receptor activators and um, they kind of help with the... Uh, 
the signal from your, basically they're helping kind of uh, diminish the signal from your brain to your spinal cord in some capacity, um, which, you know, may be then contributing to um, uh, the signals that are going into your, your erogenous zones or in, in your pelvis. So, um, and those are neuropathic pains, medications, um, trying to really, you know, tone down that signal. Um, so there is help. Uh, there's multiple within each region, there's multiple ideas to treat. I think region five is always the hardest to kind of navigate in some ways because, you know, a lot of patients do not think they're going to get better. So their anxiety gets worse, which then makes their PGAD worse. And so, and then a lot of patients can't find, figure out what their triggers are. Um, and so it is a very difficult disease, I think, to treat, but it is very rewarding when you're able to help them in whatever capacity, if you can reduce their symptoms, eliminate their symptoms, or even, even when I acknowledge that this is an actual thing you're experiencing, like the tears are flooding, right? Like, no, this is real. This is not just, I mean, yeah, the brain is involved, but it's not in your head. You know, this is not something you're making up. Yeah, I think somebody just validating your concerns, right, is a big deal. And especially Mm -hmm. if you've been dismissed for so long from the medical community and nobody understands what's really going on. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they think that there's something, you know, that they're crazy, that they're, you know, they should or that or that they should be enjoying this. Right. Right. And they're not. And it's just so distressing to them. Right. Part of me also thinks that when there's so much um, tension in the pelvic floor when you were talking about that, that probably contributes to vaginismus as well, I would think, right? Yes, they all usually have secondary vaginismus, um, or many of them will. Um, Some of them will have, you know, this really bad vestibular pain on when I do Q-tip exams. But it's like you're trying to pick which evil you're trying to treat, right? Like, I'm like, oh, you're having a lot of pain at your vestibule. They're like, I know, but really I want to deal with this pressure feeling that I have. Um, So sometimes helping to treat that will mitigate that. Sometimes it won't. Um, And so um, I think that, you know, but, but I I do think that, you know, what we talked about, just acknowledging it is, is very powerful for them. And sometimes I feel like when I talk about some of these issues that I'm really, negative toward our medical system. And I don't, I don't want to be that way. I don't think that like, you know, clinicians and doctors out there are actively trying to dismiss patients. But like we said, we're not getting the education that we need, right? Like, again, if you don't have the words for it, if a patient doesn't have the words for it, if a clinician doesn't have the words for it, how do we know it's an actual thing? And so it's really up to and 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 that's why the impetus is on us to continue lifelong learning, right? We attend, we go to how many conferences a year? My husband's always like, "Why do you go to some?" And I'm like, "Medicine changes every year." Like, I'm a solo doctor; I can't be a good clinician if I'm not going to these things, you know. Like, um, just like every time we go to these sexual medicine conferences, you know, like I'll learn one or two tidbits to take back, and the patients are like, "Oh, thanks." They all, actually they really get excited when I'm going. They're like, "Oh, okay, tell us what you come back and learn." Like, yeah. And I'm like. It is exciting, right? Because there's always new research and that's the great thing about it. Um, When you talk about the vestibulodynia, right? The Mm -hmm. pain that um, happens right at that, um, where that Hartman's line and, uh, you know, the area between, you were saying the labia minora and where the introitus is and it goes all the way up to the urethra. uh, We know that sometimes uh, birth control pills also Mm -hmm. cause pain, right? And so they say to sometimes get off of the birth control because that's 
causing a lot of pain. Right. A lot of times I'll do that as well for my patients, especially if they're... So, you know, um, again, that vestibulodynia that we talk about can be related to hormone deficiency. So for some patients, I think it's around 15% of patients that um, go on the birth control pill, especially if they go on it as teenagers. So when patients go on it, all of a sudden, because of their painful periods or irregular periods, um, you know, they can develop these changes in the in the vulva area, the clitoris, um, through, you know, the hormonal suppression that happens with birth control, right? Like it's, um, and, and most of these patients have uh, are some sort of receptor defect, an androgen receptor defect at the vestibule. So if they're getting this medication that's lowering their testosterone, if you think about so many patients going on the birth control pill for acne, um, it can really change the, the way their, their vulva and the vagina look, their labia can regress, the vestibule can get smaller. Um, and I mean, more um, like air, red and inflamed and angry, the clitoris shrinks in size usually. So it does in, in other capacities affect sexual function. Um, and I think it's important to know that not that I mean, birth control pills are wonderful. And I don't want to, you know, like, I, I feel like sometimes going to these conferences, like they're like, oh, birth control pills are you. But like, you know, we know that we've d- gone come a l- such a long way with birth control pills that, you know, there's definitely like medical purposes for it, pre- for its pregnancy, we know that and that's important especially when our own um, uterus is not under our own control these days with our government I think <laughs> but um, I uh, uh, but there are those patients so I think you know it's just important to tell them like some patients do get you know um, sexual dysfunction so if you start noticing you know you know pain at insertion uh, that just starts within the you know years of taking the birth control pill then let us know so we can take a look so I always um, preface that when I start someone on a birth control pill for the first time but patients that are on it for acne like they'll choose treating their acne all day <laughs> like usually usually yeah yeah, so. yeah I think it's so important right I think that with the things that you mentioned is really I think some of the most important takeaways is just validating patients' concerns, mm-hmm. letting them know that they're not crazy. And especially because we really, you know, hand out birth control pills like their water because they do help with so many things, so right? Right. And perimenopausal women are taking it to prevent pregnancy, but also, you know, if they decide to take that before they start taking hormones, right. um, you know, there's so many benefits to it. And yet, you know, we don't really often discuss the, the contra, you know, the things that can happen the side effects where you can have that pain with insertion you can have decreased libido you can have you know so many other changes that happen because of the birth control and so it's important to kind of go over the risks and benefits and let the patient decide whatever it is that they think because it's always joint decision making right we're not we don't practice patriarchal medicine anymore so (laughs) (laughs) at least you and i don't i don't know about the rest (laughs) of the guys that's right yeah yeah so that is fantastic so you know for people that maybe experiencing this, you know, I think one of the uh, other takeaways is that there is hope and it's important to find a provider like Dr. Rahman, who will take your concerns seriously and really go into an in-depth of all the different ways that this could be happening. And, you know, there's so many different regions and I I love how Ishwish separates it into the different regions Mm -hmm. so that, you know, you can take a look at an in-depth approach to each region and see where you can help the patient and that it's not, you know, 
be that detective that your patient needs you to be. Right, right? exactly. Um, and I think, you know, obviously we have to give a shout out to Dr. Erwin Goldstein, the godfather of female sexual medicine. But, you know, his, um, I think he's he has been on the forefront um, of really trying to help a lot of these patients with PGAD because um, they've come to him from all over the world. So, uh, and and uh, if you go to the Ishwish website, there are members on the Ishwish website who, you know, at least will have knowledge base about this, right? It's not like you're going to be talking to someone that has no idea what you're talking about and they should be able to get you in the right steps, getting you into the right situation to help you. So I think that is really important. Um, and then there's a patient-facing website for Ishwish called Prosela, uh, P-R-O-S-A-Y-L-A. And that one also has a lot of good information about some of the things that we talk about on this um, podcast. Right. And I think that uh, what's great is that, you know, for people that are listening and watching this podcast, that they probably know so much more now than yeah. their doctors yeah. <laughs> regarding the PGAD, right? I know. And absolutely. Yeah. Just learning yeah. from Dr. Rahman, who treats us all the time. So I think it's really important to find the appropriate healthcare provider that can give you the services that mm-hmm. you need. And again, so. it's multidisciplinary. One person may yeah. not be able to, I mean, you can find one person that can help lead and talk to, and, you know, like I'm always talking to psychiatrists and sex therapists and um, I've, I have a pelvic floor therapist in my office. So obviously, you know, some person has to be able to, to bring it all together. But, um, you know, uh, I think, you know, one of the best benefits from these podcasts that you can get and an, as not only an awareness of what other disease processes are, what might be happening to you, but also just learning how to advocate for yourself, right? I think that's what's been to me, at least when I look at social media and like YouTube and like podcasts, the one thing I see patients and, and it used to, you know, I think some people get bothered by the Googling that people come I Googled this. I go, I actually like when patients come to me, it used to like, I used to maybe think in that way, but now I look at it as, um, they're coming to me with this information that they've gotten. Some of it is true. Some of it is not. It's my job to help them discern, you know, like what's the misinformation they're getting from, you know, social media? What's the correct information? But either way, it's bringing about awareness to something that may or may not, you know, um, uh, help or hurt them in some capacity, right? So I think it's important to bring the discussion, like it's bringing forward a discussion to the people that, that are trying to help you and take care of you. So um, I think that's very important and just um, validating, you know, how they're feeling again is, is very important. But the advocacy piece is huge. I mean, if you look at the movement, even in menopause, and we talk about how menopause is having a moment, it's all the Gen Xers out there who have, you know, they call us the what is the latchkey generation. We were thirty when we were, you know, thirteen, and we're st- still thirty at fifty or whatever it is. But I mean, it's like you know, we're the we're the ones that are now trying to take the lead on this because you know we saw how the generations before us suffered, and we don't want to suffer the same way. And I think that self uh, that patient advocacy has been huge in all of these movements, and that's why PGAD also actually like has um, gotten more. Um, in the forefront because there have been patient advocates that have come to Dr. Goldstein and Ishwish and other places that have, have, and I remember actually um, the, when I first learned about it at Ishwish, they had a panel of patients actually. Um, and one of the patients like came forward with her story and Dr. Goldstein kind of went, reviewed everything and, you know, said how he helped her and everything like that. And it was really, uh, you know, those stories are important. I think you learn a lot from them. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Thank you. So, um, you know, somebody listening on here is wondering and thinking like, you are totally awesome. How can they be your patient? Where can they find you? You know, so how can patients find you? Um, and if they want to come and see you? Oh, I um, I'm located in downtown Chicago. I do have license in uh, California, uh, Illinois, and um, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Indiana. So I do have a couple of state licenses because of, um, you know, especially when it comes to certain things like menopause that we can try to evaluate patients uh, from a distance. But, um, but yeah, that, or I'm on, I'm on, uh, you know, Instagram as gyno girl, I have a YouTube station and hopefully we'll be launching a podcast at some point. So (laughs) we will see how that goes, but you know, it's a lot of work, right? Dr. Lothi. So it's like, Yes, it is, but it's worth it. And I think that the information that you bring, you know, to the table and also um, that it's all research backed and evidence based, you know, is super important because people can find information doesn't necessarily mean that it's right or that it's true, but you know, they will find their own information. So I think it's super important to have resources out there that are able to provide that credible information to patients seeking that out. So yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, thank Dr. Mon, for joining us and joining us here today. And it's been real and 100. Really- Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, so proud of you. That's amazing. Amazing. And your podcast has reached so many people internationally. So wow. Thank you. Well, thank you for being a guest on here twice. And I'm sure I will have you on lots more times because you are filled with a wealth of information and such a good lecture. So thank you so much oh, for coming. Thank you. On. I appreciate it. Thank you as well. It's been real and really intimate and we are done here. So remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you are having any sexual health issues or any health issues, be sure to speak with your healthcare provider and find a provider that validates and um, values your input and make sure that you get the treatment and care that you need. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends and thanks for listening.